I don't know if you were a fan of the Far Side cartoons uh, years ago, uh, but uh, there was one that I particularly remember, and it was uh, two different scenes. The first uh, was uh, entitled, What We Say to Our Dog. And it was someone saying, Ginger, I told you not to get into the garbage. You need to stop getting in the garbage, Ginger, or else. And then in the next panel, it says, what our dog hears. Ginger, blah, 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 blah. Ginger, blah, blah, blah. And you know, I don't think it's just dogs that hear like that. I, I think we're a lot like that, don't you? Like we don't hear much of anything, but when we hear our name mentioned, it sort of captures our attention, it gets our interest. That's certainly true in a restaurant where they call out your name, right? Well, I want us to hear, as we look at God's Word uh, today, as we finish uh, the Upper Room Discourse, as we listen to Jesus praying, I want us to, as it were, hear Jesus praying your name if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Because in this text, in John 17, verse 20, uh, through the end, verse 26, he is praying for you. So I want you to listen to the Word of God as Jesus prays for each of you who believe in him. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they all may also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Thus ends the reading of our text. When we study God's Word, whether we're all by ourselves or whether we're all together like this, we need His help. And so we pray for that right now. Heavenly Father, we love You and thank You that You have given Your Word to us. Lord, it is a delight and privilege to hear our Savior praying for us. Oh Lord, we pray that indeed we will experientially enjoy the answer in our lives, in our church, in our communities of faith to all of these beautiful things that Jesus prays for us. Oh Lord, we pray that Your Spirit will work in us even now as we study these words. Lord, that You will help us to understand, to believe, and be changed by them. And I pray, O oh Lord, that You will help me. That You will use me as a conduit of Your grace to Your people. 
that they might hear from you, that they might grow in you, and that you might be glorified, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we look at this last part of this series, I want us to look at two things uh, that, yes, we have mentioned before as we have looked through what Jesus teaches His disciples and through them us. But here Jesus brings them home at the end. It's what's on His heart and mind about those who will believe in Him. And that is, I want us to see how Jesus talks about, how He defines unity. And secondly, I want us to see the future that Jesus prays and secures for us. So we're going to look at unity defined, and we're going to look at a future secured. First of all, I want us to talk about unity defined. Now, some of you may be wondering already, why does he say that this is Jesus praying for me? Well, it really is in verse 20. I do not ask for these only. That's the uh, disciples, the 11 that are still in the room with him but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You see, here Jesus is looking through the great span of time from this holy moment until the end of time as we know it. And He is thinking of every person who will hear the truth that Jesus is God the Son who has been incarnated in this world and has shown us the beauty, the truth, and glory of God the Father and His obedience, in His teaching, and in His sacrificial work for them. For people who hear that good news and say, yes, I believe that, and I trust in Jesus and Jesus alone to be right with God. He says, I am thinking of them and I am praying for them. And if that's you then Jesus here is praying for you. And I want us to hear that. And I want us to feel how personal this is because of what He prays. Notice Jesus prays again that they, which includes us who believe, will be one. Just as Jesus the Son is one with God the Father. Now when we hear those words... I know that some of you instantly throw up the force field. And you say, wait, wait, wait. You know, before we start talking about unity, we need to talk about how most Christians are wrong. Right? Isn't that our instinct? As soon as we hear something about how people who follow Jesus should be one, we immediately begin thinking of exceptions to that rule. About all the people we should not be one with. But I want us to hear this. Is Jesus saying, turn off your mind and simply be united with anyone who names themselves as a Christian without thinking about it or applying the truths of Scripture? No, He doesn't at all. And so I want us to talk about how Jesus defines and explains how we will actually experience unity. Now, why am I harping on this? Because to be honest, we need this. I mean, let's forget just for a second here at Village 7 about every other Christian believer out there in our community, in our state, in our nation, in the world. Let's just talk about actually being one inside of this body of believers called Village 7. Let's talk about what it would mean to our fellowship, our enjoyment, and to our witness in the community where we live if we actually thought of ourselves as one group of believers honoring and serving Christ in this community. 
And then we can apply it beyond there once we get a handle on that. But how does he define this unity? He defines this unity in verse 21. He starts with saying this unity exists because every single one of those who believe in me are united with me. We've talked about this idea before. We will talk about this idea a lot in the future. And here Jesus is talking about, in verse 21, our union with Christ. The fact that everything that is true of Jesus, if we believe in Him, is true of us. And everything that was true of us, including our sin and the fact that we deserve punishment for it, becomes true of Jesus as we see on the cross. Notice in 21, he says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and they also may be in us. Jesus is saying the way that the community of believers will be one is it starts with the fact that they are one with Christ by faith. They are one with Christ. Years ago, I remember an illustration, and I I may have already shared it here. Goodness, I've only been here a few months, but it's such a good one uh, that I repeated a fair amount. When my wife and I were uh, preparing to get married, we went to this conference. I know I did share it here, right? And we talked about the fact that you're going to grow closer together as a couple as you move closer to Jesus Christ. And you know that's true of the body of believers as well. As we understand our primary identity, not being and our individual talents, our preferences, our politics, you know, our personal physical habits, but we increasingly see that the core of our identity is that we are united with Jesus Christ, then we are going to feel a greater affinity and partnership with others who likewise see that as their central identity. You see, one of the things that gets in the way of Christian unity is, to be honest, our identity in Christ becomes secondary to all of our other characteristics. And Jesus says, no, they will enjoy unity the more they see their union with me as their core identity. Is Jesus in you and you in Jesus? How you think of yourself? He says that's how we will begin to have unity. Secondly, in verse 23, we see that it is an experience of love that will help us move toward unity. Notice in verse 23, he says, in, uh, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Now, we've talked about this before, but that's just mind-numbing. That Jesus is praying that the world will know that Jesus' followers, including you and I sitting here today who believe in him, are loved by God as much as he loves Jesus. Do you have trouble believing that? I have trouble believing that. I mean, it's Mother's Day, and I will make my call to my mother today, and it will be exciting, and I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to her. I, I purposely haven't called all week because I want to get all the information fresh. You know, and when I talk to my mother, who I love and adore, she's going to tell me what all my siblings did for her on Mother's Day. <laughs> and they all live there, so they can deliver plants, and they can come help in her garden, or paint her pergola, or whatever the case may be, and I send a lame card and so, even though she's going to tell me how lovely she thought the card was, I'm going to know that 
she loved my Mother's Day gift a little less than she loved that of my siblings. Does anybody else here have that situation? Is that just my insecurity? I think that we think the same way about God's love for us. We're like, well, I know he loves Jesus. I mean, mean, he's ontologically one with Jesus. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I know that they have an eternal symphony of love. C.S. Lewis describes it as the dance of love. And I know that, but I have a hard time thinking that God loves me like that. Jesus says, you will enjoy unity with other Christian believers when you begin to experience the unfettered, unconditional grace and love of God in your life because you know something happens the more you experience it is that love grows up in you. You begin to become what you behold. The more you realize how completely you're loved, the more loving you tend to become. Tend to become. So let's say you're in a relationship and you're having a hard time loving that other person. And you've tried to fool yourself that you can overlook their many foibles. You can overlook that thing they do. You can overlook the way they roll their eyes or whatever the case may be. The point is that's the wrong direction. Trying to live in denial of that other person's sinfulness or just simply oddness is not going to help you become a more loving person to that individual. What will help you? Dive headfirst into the infinite love of God the Father and how much He loves you. Bathe in it. Rejoice in it. And let it inhabit you as you meditate on His gracious love for you. Then you will become loving. You see, part of the reason why the church doesn't enjoy greater unity is, to be honest, we're far more aware of the sins and foibles of other Christians than we are of the infinite love of God for us and for them. And if I saw every other man, woman, and young person in this church, and I thought to myself, boy, does God love that person, I think I would treat them differently. I would talk to them differently. I would be more patient with them and kind with them. I would listen because I understand we have a a unity, a bond that is deeper than blood. It is the infinite, perfect love of God on their behalf. Thirdly, Jesus When he talks about this unity, he's talking about a unity that has a purpose. And what is the purpose? We see it really both in 21 and 23, right? In 21, he says, so that, that's a purpose statement. You know, why am I praying for them to be unified? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. He says it in verse 23, slightly different. So that the world may know that you sent me. So what is he saying? When unity happens among believers, when they recognize that they are all like each other, united with Christ in that mystical union, when they all realize that they are loved by God as much as Jesus, they form a cohesive community that is an effective witness in this world for the truth about who Jesus is and what he has come to do. I don't think we ever think about that. I don't think we ever think about the cost 
of our pettiness, of our snippiness, of our judgment and critical nature toward other followers of Jesus Christ. I don't think we ever imagine what the truth of the reality is. That let's imagine the church as a boat and we're all in it. And the church has a purpose, and that is to proclaim who Jesus is and how the world can be made right with God through Him. Every time we show discord, disharmony, or to be honest, flat-out hatred of people who are called by Jesus His own, the very people along with us, Jesus is praying for us, we are taking a gun and shooting a hole in the bottom of the boat. And while we might be able to bail that water out fast enough to keep us from sinking, we're so much less effective at what God has made us to do. Now, I know some of you, your force fields have been up this whole time. And you're like, I'm all for union with Jesus. I'm all for knowing God's love for me, and as incredible as that may seem. And I'm all for generally being nice to other Christians as long as they agree with everything I think. But is your, and let me just call it what it is in many cases, or at least in my own case, when I read something on a blog or an article or a book where I disagree with that other person who's called by the name of Christ, do you know what? I like to think that it's holy anger that I'm feeling, right? Phineas with my spear, look it up. And there I am, you know, ready to do God's work for him. And you know what it really is when I have time to reflect on it? Straight up self-righteousness. That I feel prideful. That I know that biblical truth, which by the way was completely revealed to me by God's grace, and that person doesn't. How dare them say that? <laughs> you know? Who does that bring glory to? Me. Me. Jesus says, I want the world to know the truth about me, and they'll know it by the way that we are united in our faith in Jesus Christ. Fourthly, in terms of our unity, and I, and I say the best for last, it's one of those mind-numbing things that Jesus prays. Jesus prays that the church, that's people like us, will have His glory. Listen to what He says in verse 22. The glory, this is what Jesus, Jesus is praying this to God the Father. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. <laughs> what does that mean? That Jesus has given those who believe in Him His glory. Well, glory, of course, is the outward manifestation of God's character, of His attributes, of His purposes in this world. Jesus is saying that I have allowed the church, those who believe in me, to reflect my glory in the world. We are the glory of Jesus in the world. Lord, help us. And you say, how will that help me? 
think about myself in a cooperation, in a unity with other believers in Jesus Christ, well, it's because of this that glory isn't given to individual believers, but to the group of believers. And here's the reality. You have a piece of that glory that we desperately need. And you have a peace, and you have a peace, and you have a peace. And that when we are united in love, in faith, and in service, we make a beautiful picture of the glory of Jesus Christ for this world to know and believe who He is. And so when I am perfectly content to be the, you know, west of the Mississippi, Lone Ranger, Libertarian Christian that I believe that it's just me and Jesus and I don't need anybody else, you are robbing the world of a reflection of the glory of Jesus. He says, I I, I want them to have my glory. And I want this world to see the glory that he has put together in this body right here. I don't know, can you think of more motivation to try to find common ground, to talk about Jesus and our faith in him, To talk about how he's our identity. Jesus says, I pray. I pray this church will enjoy this because the world needs to hear the message that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, in the world to save sinners like us. Secondly, I want us to see, we just can't skip over this. I want us to see this future that is secured in verse 24. We get back to the subject of glory. It makes a good transition. Jesus in his prayer, notice in verse 24, says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, and that includes us. He's not just talking about the disciples. I am am praying that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is an echo of what Jesus began this whole dialogue with. He said toward the beginning of his time with his disciples that I go to prepare a place for you. You know, I would not have told you if it was not true. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come and bring you where I am. And we talked about it. And it's an encouraging thing. But here Jesus prays for it. He's praying. He's praying for this future. He's praying for a time in the future when we will be physically in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice what he prays. One, he desires to be with us. Did you notice that? Father, I desire. I want. This is, this is what I want. I want to be with those who believe in me. Isn't that encouraging? Jesus wants to be with us forever. Some of you, I can only take an hour with. I mean, I'm you. You know, it might, it might go down to 30 minutes over time, right? And that's because I'm still a sinner, self-centered, prideful, self-righteous. You know, we confess these things every week. And people always seem surprised when they find out it's actually true. Jesus wants to be with you Forever. (laughs) And more than that, he wants you to experience his glory. Not just the glory 
that the disciples are able to see here in this upper room. But the glory he had, he says, before the foundation of the world. That is his exuberant, beautiful, infinite glory. Now, I I stress this because I really do believe that most people sitting here think spending eternity with Jesus, while sounds better than the alternative, doesn't sound particularly exciting. And my answer to that is you have no clue what glory is, if that's the case. I want you to imagine, I know it's toward the end of the sermon, so if I get your imagination going in this direction, it won't cost me too much. Imagine any experience you've had that has taken your breath away. I understand some of our students from ECA this weekend had a banquet that sounded a lot like a prom, where people dressed up and looked nice. And I have no doubt that among that group, there was some young woman that came down the stairs toward their date, standing there awkwardly, having that small talk conversation with her parents. And some guy had to catch his breath because he'd never seen her look like that. Never seen her in those heels. Never, never seen her all dressed up. Her hair done just perfectly. Or maybe it was for you when you saw your bride walking down the aisle. Or hey, I don't, I don't want to be sexist. Maybe it was girls when you walked through those doors and saw how good looking that groom looked down at the bottom, standing next to that studly pastor. Right? <laughs> and it... Hey, You know, we had an expression in church planning, fake it till you make it. You know, I keep trying. You know, I know better. Or maybe it was when you finally got up to the last 14er that you wanted to make sure you got to the top of. And it was just as the sun was rising because people tell me you need to do that stuff early in the morning. Or maybe it was standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon or the Pacific Ocean or some other place. And just for a moment... All of those are tiny drops of glory that you have been able to experience. Tiny drops of glory. Jesus says, I not only want to be with them, but I want them to experience the full totality of my glory. Folks, let me tell you, heaven ain't going to be boring. As a matter of fact, we're going to need a new heavenly body to be able to take it. Because if you experienced it for a second, you'd be on your face pleading for it to end. It's going to be so glorious and so good. I like it the way John says it in 1 John. He says in chapter 3, he said, uh, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Glory! We haven't seen the tip of the iceberg. Jesus says, I want every one of you to know that that is secure for you and you will experience it. That gives us hope. So between here and there, we can put up with the fact that 
the group of sinners that God wants us to be unified with aggravate us a little bit. We can trust God and His love to enable us to love them. We can trust that because we are united in our commitment and relationship with Jesus Christ, that it's okay. It will be more than made up for by those that believe because of the testimony of our unity and because of our eternal enjoyment of His glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You. We thank You for Your goodness and kindness to us. We pray, Lord, that we will not be uninterested or unimaginative when it comes to the vast promises, Lord, that You give us for our future. And Jesus, when He prays for us, is not praying for something that is a maybe it will happen, but it is praying for what will happen. Oh Lord, may we savor the promise of future presence and glory with Jesus, but may we also be filled with Your love for our brothers and sisters that we might proclaim a world-saving unity in Christ, we pray. Amen.